This Empowered Podcast episode is brought to you by our sponsors. PowerMac. PowerMac Center Apple Authorized Global Training Provider is committed to provide high-quality Apple certification and non-certification programs to groups and individuals who wish to leverage their technical and creative edge with Apple technology. PowerMac Center is the only official partner in the Philippines of LearnQuest, Apple's global training provider. Rex Bookstore. Rex Bookstore is a 21st century learning solutions provider in the Philippines, providing books, digital solutions, and more for the Philippine whole child. Rex Bookstore is the official partner of Schoology in the Philippines. Schoology brings together the best K-12 learning management system with assessment management to improve student performance, foster collaboration, and personalized learning. Adarna House, dedicated to Filipino children of all ages around the world. Adarna House creates products and services used at home and in school to promote love for country, language, and learning. Adarna Digital is also the developer of the award-winning literacy development app, Buri Books, your child's professional ebook library for education and entertainment. Buri Books is available for iOS, Android, and for the web, allowing for convenient access on your device of choice. Xavier School Founded and managed by the Society of Jesus, the school is a K-12 school offering a three-level curriculum, early education, grade school, and high school. Xavier School is also an IB World School, authorized to offer the International Baccalaureate Diploma Program, IBDP, a rigorous and innovative academic program recognized by universities worldwide. Xavier School has two campuses, one in Xavier School San Juan in Green Hill San Juan City and Xavier School New Valley in Laguna. Hi, I'm live from Xavier School and I have my episode interview with Mark Reed, 2015 Global Teacher Prize finalist, an arts education advocate and a sustainable development goals advocate also. So please do enjoy our podcast episode where Mark shares all about his innovations and projects and advocacies on on arts education and the UN SDGs. So we're here with Mark Reed from Canada, a fellow Global Teacher Prize finalist. He was in 2015 and now one of the members, well, of the global family of Clarky Teacher Ambassadors. So Mark? Thank you for having me, Jim. All right. So Mark here is on his last day. He arrived two weeks ago. I flew from Vancouver to Taiwan and had an overnight there before coming here and then working with a ton of different teachers and organizations here. So he's been to Dunsol in Sorsogon, Naga City in Kamsur or Kamarina Sur, well, Quezon City, Pasig, Taguig, everywhere in Metro Manila, even in the Pambansang Museo, like the National Museum of the Philippines. So let's get to know more about Mark. So Mark, can you tell us something about yourself? Yeah, sorry, I'm a teacher in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, and I am... I would say at the core of my teacher identity, I'm a music teacher. And I started out that way, but found myself over uh, the now 16 years that I've been teaching, uh, expanding my 
perspective and also raising my voice on issues that go beyond just music education, into arts education as a whole, into education policy, into how we can connect arts ed uh, with uh, sustainable development goals, teaching, um, and really starting to look at what it means to have global collaboration across subject area, discipline, across continent, you know, over the oceans. It's, it's really incredible now when I think about how I started as a teacher and where I am now. It gives me um, a lot to think about and maybe even more to consider pursuing over the rest of my career. So this from being a classroom, classroom music, music teacher, teacher, high school band and choir. Yeah, and then moving towards education policy? Yeah, I, and after, then, after I was, uh, became a Global Teacher Prize finalist in 2015, I was offered the opportunity um, through a posting to work at the British Columbia Ministry of Education. And so I was supposed to go there for one year, and my job was to essentially switch from being a teacher member of the arts education curriculum writing team to be the coordinator of that team and to manage the file for the ministry. Um, and when, you're, when you're, you're handed that opportunity, then you start to realize oh, there's a whole part of the education system that maybe we don't see. Um, I've often thought that it would be incredible professional development for every teacher to work in their provincial or state um, or, you know, or national department or ministry of education so that they can understand what some of those uh, bird's eye view perspectives are and how that then translates into what's really going on with education policy in our schools. Okay, so I would like to go back to your experiences in the classroom. Yeah. So, like most of our, well, most of the audience here are teachers. So, what are your, what are the best experiences of being a music teacher or a band coach or band teacher? Yeah, the, the most interesting thing um, that I, and I really love to talk about this because I think it's such a, uh, a unique element of what we do in music. When the teacher's role is as both teacher and guide, and then also adding in, the, in terms of performance as conductor, we essentially are doing the exact same thing at the exact same time for the exact same purpose with our students. We share that experience. There's nowhere else in a student's learning career that they share that kind of thing. The only thing that comes close might be a rowing team where the coxswain is calling out the, you know, the pacing and the timing for the rowers, uh, that relationship. But even then, that relationship is at most eight people and a coxswain. Yeah. You know, when, when we're working with 150 students singing together or 100 students playing instruments together, even if it's down to just a small group of like a jazz band of 21, we're still sharing in this moment that's incredibly organic. And uh, at times, there, there's those improvisational moments. And so we, we think about the wonderful things we learn from our colleagues who teach in um, kindergarten grade one, grade two, heroes of education for the work that they do yeah. to set up a student's <laughs> career. Um, that when, when we're sharing in those moments with them, students have started to recognize even more what um, options and opportunities exist, how we can plan for them, but then how we can also leave space for the opportunities that present themselves suddenly. A moment when we're performing and uh, a particular expressive element just needs to be pushed a little bit more to experience it more richly. Uh, that's a really fascinating thing that we get to experience. And 
It happens live and in the moment. So much of what kids do now uh, is you know, captured in an Instagram post yeah. that is heavily filtered and edited and changed <laughs> so that they can present a particular image. And I love live musical performance with students because it's authentic and it's real. It's totally in the moment. Um, we, we're dealing with different kids now than we had 20 years ago. The kids today are different than I was. Um, as a kid, or that you were as a kid, but what is common is that we're still we were still kids then. We were still ready to learn then. So if we think maybe uh, a little bit more carefully about the role that live experience, in the moment experience, can can provide, um, I think it's great when kids can create videos of their learning and that kind of thing. But nothing beats a live classroom presentation. They speak to their peers and they listen back for questions yeah. and that kind of thing. And that's what we get every day in music. I mean, yes, sometimes we record things for an archival purpose or to capture a particular moment of excellence, but live performance is live performance. You can't beat it. That's uh, what I was expecting. Uh, so Mark, uh, a while ago, also taught to grade 8 students in my school, in Xavier's school. At first I thought, well, I was talking to their music teacher, they said that their lesson was about band. So I was expecting, I thought I was gonna see Mark teach students be part of a band, like really play instruments. But then, yeah, the teacher was like, no, it's still the first session. So we're going to introduce what it means to be part of a band. And I really learned a lot from a lot of insights coming from a teacher who observed, it was my first time to observe a music class. I've never been to a music class. Uh, I coached music teachers for technology, but never been in a class. And, and with that first experience of mine, looking at Mark, I've learned a lot about what it means to really, I mean, collaborate. We always say to students, learn how to collaborate, learn how to solve this problem, collaboratively and everything but Mark presented it in a different way, in a music perspective. And Mark, what are your like reflections or maybe ideas why you did that yeah. sort of yeah. activity? Well, okay, the activity uh, itself, I want to give credit to uh, Melly Salguero uh, right. from PS48 uh, in, uh, in the Bronx, uh, because that was part of the, the session that she gave this year in Dubai at the Global Education Skills Forum in talking about what it means to be a team. And that, that is so fundamental. It doesn't matter if it's a small group or it's a 100-piece orchestra. Um, if you're a four-piece rock band, 100-piece orchestra, you still all have to work together. Yeah. And the ultimate skill that we don't often overtly talk about is the fact that music students are accomplished negotiators. They would probably not realize that unless they were told that. And I don't think that they would be able to negotiate by a conventional definition. But if you imagine that in the moment in a live performance, if one musician in the group starts to falter, the, all of the others, they take up the responsibility of helping that peer Get, get back on track yeah. and, and not, not fall off and be left behind. And I think that that's something that's special in how we, we, uh, we pursue consensus over democracy. Uh, we, we negotiate out those moments for how something is going to occur. Not necessarily what will occur, but how. And that's, yeah. that's the, bigger, the bigger question. And when we, we imagine that in the course of preparation, 
a lot of decisions are made, mm -hmm. but a performance with an audience is so temporal. So no matter what preparation you've done, yeah. that performance could still be different. It could still yeah. be uh, a, a more rich experience. It can also be um, a very honest experience if something doesn't quite go as well. That exposes opportunities to, to revisit the preparation process and to find out what it really, really means to be prepared as a musician. But that, that negotiation element that ability to select the right strategy to improve collectively. Mm -hmm. And one thing we talked about with those grade eights today was around the uh, two points that are bundled together. One is saying yes and being willing uh, with an open mind to defer to others' perspectives, to welcome those perspectives and to consider them, to give them real uh, meaningful consideration. And then, of course, the other is to, to recognize the level of equity across the group. You know, in that particular class, one student is identified as the class president, yes. But he, when we, we talked to him today about what it means to be the president, and he said, I'm still a student, I'm still like the other guys in the class. That is so wonderful because it, it, it identifies how he is first among equals. And in every band or choir or orchestra or whatever instrumental or, or vocal music ensemble really, no matter what tradition it's from, somebody will fill that role of being first among equals. And if we, if we can encourage students to recognize that that is, um, it's a special role without making the child special. So we're all equals, no one is special, but the responsibility itself is special. And that helps, I think that helps us to move away from uh, a, a democracy principle towards that consensus principle. Um, democracy can be wonderful, Majority. but it can also be scary yeah. for a minority yes. whose, dis, whose influence is, is quashed, is cast aside. If consensus is the pursuit now we see, in, when we see lots of people that are champions for democracy in education or democratizing the classroom. However, I think if you challenge them to really explain what that meant, they would talk more about consensus than they would about the, con the conventional perspective on democracy being majority rules. Yeah. So um, during during Mark's class in AD, I was talking on the side, on the side, with Marie Delayon, their teachers, and she was like. Oh my gosh, those are the things that my students need to understand in terms of being part of a band. Because in the end, uh, Marie was like, these kids will focus individually on their skills because it will be their first time to really work with each other. But in the end, as kids, they will focus on asking or showing that they're really good with the instruments. And then Marie was like, Mark really hit the best part of being part of the band that yeah you can practice your skills be good individually but in the end you have to work together that's how you forget yourself yeah. and then be one with everyone because in the end it's like the same goal yeah, yeah. there's there's one thing I, I'm realizing uh, there's a sort of catchphrase that I, I've learned from uh, my teacher Jerry King at the University of Victoria and I'm sure that he's he's shared that perspective with me as a student uh, based on many years of experience, but also the influence of others in this particular perspective, that there's a balance of individual goals and collective goals. Mm -hmm. And so if there was a message that I'd like 8E to hear that I didn't share today, it's this, you practice at home to learn your part. You rehearse at school 
to learn everybody else's. And so that means you have to show up with your part. You have to show up with the level of preparation that you can contribute to the learning experiences of others. You know, in, in other classrooms, uh, you know, you do your your uh, writing sample, or you do some math work or science work, whatever it may be. Um, not all the time, but there is a good chunk of time that is about doing your own work on your own desk. And in a music room, it is extremely rare that a student is working. Uh, entirely independently or autonomously so much of what we do is collaborative it's almost all the time really so having them recognize that there's that preparatory responsibility so that they can come in and share as part of the responsibility everyone is equally responsible for how things go in a performance um, and so it's so important that there's that practice at home to learn your part, rehearse at school to learn everyone else's, to make that concept of individual goal and collective goal really come to life. In the Philippines right now, we, it's never been a problem, I mean, for arts education to be there. It's always there. I mean, we're a very musically artistic country. But when you go outside, me personally, when I go to Dubai with you in Global Education Skills Forum, we see how we push for, for innovation that is literally driven by technology. So we have conversations on STEM and STEAM, but I'm also glad to always see you speak about, no, also put in arts education, humanities in a bigger sense, because there's always, should be like a comprehensive way of education. So Mark, what about, what's the agenda for arts education in the bigger 21st century learning? Yeah, I'm so glad that you, you want to talk about this because I I dream of a, a school that someday has a sign out front that says uh, you know we we provide an acronym free education to all um, the idea of STEM uh, even the, the steam movement of infusing the arts those those are really nice ways to organize a particular concept or pursuit but ultimately for me, and I, I know that this is somewhat provocative, and I have dear friends who are passionate <laughs> STEM teachers, yes. but why do we need an acronym to specify or, or concentrate our attention on a particular part of a student's learning experience when the reality is that a comprehensive education experience for a learner is what prepares them for an unknown future? Mm -hmm. You know, we, we talk about uh, you know, preparing kids for jobs that we don't even know exist yet, yeah. and yet we're throwing all of our eggs into the basket of STEM to prepare them for jobs we don't know exist yet. Mm -hmm. And and yet there are there are people talking about how a, a comprehensive education is really what balances everything out. I mean, if you try to acronymify all of a student's education experience, where does the humanities fall into STEM? Where does communication skills fall into STEM? Um, will all four of the four C's be present in yeah. STEM? Because I hear S-T-E-M, I hear no C's. So where where will they fit in? And are they then subservient to STEM? And so I, I find that so interesting that we have this hierarchical approach of let's elevate this acronym and then let's make all of these things underneath serve that master. The reality of, of collaboration, of, uh, integrated, of curriculum integration, is about reciprocal benefit. If we're going to do some sort of collaboration, you and I, mm -hmm. I'm going to bring some things to the table, as will you. And I want to walk away as a better educator, and I want you to walk away as a better educator. 
I don't think it should be one-sided. When, uh, an, uh, let's say, a music teacher and a science teacher sit down together and say, let's explore the physics of sound, and let's have our students have a really meaningful experience around the physics of sound. Well, we don't want students to walk away being scientifically brilliant yeah. with no understanding of a musical or an artful application, but we don't want it the other way, where all it is really about acoustics from a hearing or listening perspective without any understanding about the science behind that. It's got to be about mutual benefit. That's what true integration should yes, be all yes, about. So I, I really strongly advocate for a, a STEM-free zone to be available in every single <laughs> school so that we're actually thinking about where the humanities fit in and we're thinking yes. about where we are creating citizens of tomorrow that are prepared for anything that comes at them, that they're thinking about solutions that are very real. And I would argue that a, a sort of nexus that I, I think of is a really good way for us to be thoughtful about this. And it's, it's regardless of subject area. I think that's why it's stronger as an argument. The concept of moving from play to improvisation to innovation. It doesn't matter what subject area you're talking in, and it also doesn't matter about what the age is. Younger children will spend most of their time in a purposeful or structured play environment with a little bit of improvising, pretend. Mm -hmm. And then we see, as students mature, that they're very um, competent with improvisation. We can give them tools or processes yes. or options and they can come up with ways to use those in a way that will be meaningful. Eventually, we turn that into an application that is, uh, that's really powerful. It's about responding to real world problems so that we're thinking that, you know, under the term innovation, we're thinking a little bit more uh, productively about what a student can now be achieving long term beyond yes. capability. Yes. So play, improvise, innovate. What does that nexus look like? And how does a whole school buy into that? Or how, maybe if it's just in one subject area, that we want to experiment with this. How do we see students move from a, a concept of play in music where it's just a lot of experimenting and, and just enjoying the sounds that can be made without yeah. rules, few rules, and then improv with some rules. Eventually, innovation is going to have certain rules that need to be followed so that there's a sustainable solution that yeah. comes out of it. It's not just about something that's more random. Yeah, so what reminds me actually, what you're saying to me reminds me of something dear close to my heart. Well, I'm an Apple boy, fanboy, and Steve Jobs actually mentions about, it's not just about tech, tech, tech. We need people who knows about humanities. Because in the end, people will just understand what's happening in science or whatever if there's a touch of humanities that that goes with it that's why like i was in australia like a week ago and a lot of our workshops focus not just on coding but on well parallel and equal is creativity so we talk about visual creativity like drawing um, photos videos garage band like i mean those are digital but even the maker of the GarageBand, like Dan, who, who is collaborating with Madonna, the Rolling Stone magazine, and all those things, even emphasize the idea that technology, well, they learn about technology because of their love for music. That's why we have like digital songs coming out right now. It stems from the, their passion and love for music. 
and that's where science and uh, sound engineering comes in the, the scientific part of it and everything so it just blends together yeah I think it's we sometimes forget that the concept of technology is not limited to digital technology mm -hmm. uh, I have some very good friends that are visual arts teachers yes. and I would say I'll, I will name one as being someone who has helped me learn a lot about what technology really means. Sharon Richards is an art teacher in Kamloops, British Columbia, and she spoke very passionately about being more um, broad in our thinking, that there are manual technologies, yes. there are digital technologies. When we think about you know, the makerspace movement, um, a makerspace at its best will be a combination of high-tech, low-tech, and no-tech. Yes, and, exactly. and so we need, we need to think about that really, that high-tech, low-tech, no-tech, that's talking about digital technology. Mm -hmm. And in fact, a lot of the tools in the room are manual Manual technologies yes. that were event, invented hundreds of years, thousands of years ago, to make life easier, to make a particular task easier. And when we think about uh, the processes of creating music, of documenting music or live performance of music, we need particular technologies, uh, both um, traditional or manual, and those that are, are uh, digital, to to make the experience better. And they actually, in many ways, actually serve each other. It's also really cool for kids to be thinking about how they take their passion for music and their interest in technology, and perhaps consider that. There is a career, not in necessarily in sound engineering, but in the engineering of uh, devices that record sound. We're right now using a microphone that has been designed by somebody who understands concepts of sound and concepts of, of engineering and design. And in fact, it's probably a whole team of people that would have yeah. designed this. And so we start to to think more carefully about the position of an arts education in school. That this helps that artfully minded child blend their, their artful capacity with maybe their scientific capacity and they go into a career in, um, in musical equipment design or engineering. Um, a student that, you know, in a very different way, a student that takes their musical interest or their, their arts interest and their passion for social studies and finds himself in a career in entertainment law. You know, if we're a little bit more careful with how we, we see uh, technologies or influences in education, we can start to recognize that at the core we are having students learn about and demonstrate their learning of that particular subject area. Blend them together, open some doors. That's great, but let's let's not just use technology as the um, the only means of accelerating yeah. uh, a student's learning experience or accelerating innovation. Yeah, it's, <laughs> that's not the only that's not the only way. Tech's not the only way. Because yeah. um, sometimes I hear people talk about fourth industrial revolution, and it's always pegged on how fast technology. Uh, changes so the innovation is really driven by technology but in the end I think the big idea behind or behind the fourth industrial revolution is that hey you need to keep up with your lifelong learning skills mm -hmm. it's not just about technology yeah. like empathy for example that's like a life like that's a life skill that people have to know and practice yeah, yeah. The, the 
increase or the rise of artificial intelligence as a means for expediting tasks, yes. expediting processes. Yeah. That's great and everything, but a student singing or dancing or speaking a part in a play or placing a, a pencil, a crayon, a paintbrush onto canvas, onto paper, whatever it may be, those experiences cannot be replicated Big by AI. AI. So we still need people that understand the the actual process itself, the competency of making the, the selection of the tool and the media and then applying. Yeah. Those kinds of things have to still happen. That can inform how we find better solutions to, um, to complex tasks. Yeah. But the reality is that we still need that, um, I'll say, acoustic experience before we can go into an electronic yeah. context. Like what you've said a while ago about like making decisions. That's actually critical thinking. Like, because in the, there's a survey by World Economic Forum. Like, um, mechanical tasks, clerical tasks are those most prone to being, I don't know, replaced by AI or robots. But there's like the top ten least prone, and one of those are choreographers. Those who are into arts. Yeah. Because in the end, whether how how smart we code robots or AI, in the end there are just some human skills that cannot be replaced. So there's, that's a great idea. There's right? a really, I, I, I should just dig this up and anyone who's listening can try to dig this up. Um, when I was in university uh, at UVic in, um, in British Columbia, in my third year theory course we talked about musical tastes and some researchers had done some work and they they surveyed a ton of people about what kinds of sounds are their favorite in essentially in popular music. Well, if you take the survey data and you compile it into and, and translate it into writing a song that attends to all of those interests, I distinctly recall that the least favorite sound would be a child's voice or there's a group of children singing. And in terms of the topic of the song, the length of the song, the key, the all, instrumentation, all these things. So there were two songs comparatively. This one should be the most popular type of music or meet the interests of the world over. And then this other one, everyone will dislike. And the reality is that that's just not the case. That AI will not be able to, for either a very long time, if ever, um, will not be able to predict changing or evolving tastes yeah. in the arts. And so I would, I would argue, why bother? Let that remain a part of the core of our shared human experience. One thing that I talk about a bunch when I am trying to get people to think differently about the rest of the world is that we have um, a phrase that we so often hear, that music is a universal language. Yes. That is just not true. And I know that so many people say it. They say it to me in this affirming <laughs> way, like, oh, you're a music teacher. <laughs> music is such a universal language, isn't it? And they're somewhat shocked when I look at them in the eye with a smile and say, not at all. <laughs> music is universally present. Yeah. Research says in all cultures, cultures, except for one. There's one culture, small culture uh, in, um, in Africa.
Africa where it's unclear what the role of music or presence of music is in that culture, but the rest of the planet experiences and shares music. But each one of their musics is different. I can hear the difference between music from one continent and another. And that tells me that it's not one universal language, it's a collection of languages and dialects. Uh, if we, you think about uh, Western music being of European and North American um, growth, or that's, that's a sort of heart of it, you can hear the difference between hip hop or jazz music or uh, pop rock music that you hear on the radio. They may all fit within the same musical language, yeah. but those are three totally different dialects. Yes. You cannot tell me that the same language of music is being used for country music <laughs> and gallery. Yeah. Like those are just yeah. those are two different things. Yes. And and so I, I argue that it's a, a collection of languages. It's a collection of dialects, and that's what helps bring us together. We start to recognize a shared experience as, as humans through our music. One of the best ways to get to know a culture is through its music. Yes. Through its music and its yes. dance, right? That's yes. some of the simplest things. Um, and it's it's fascinating to me when someone is willing to listen to that different perspective on music being a universal language, uh, that they walk away realizing, oh my gosh, there are more than six billion people on this planet. We don't all think the exact same way. We don't all sing, sing. Or, or make music the exact, <laughs> the exact same, same way. Yes. And and so I think you know even within Canada, I think it's so fascinating because we have um, our um, our colleagues in music who are experts at Inuit throat singing. Inuit what? Throat singing. It is. Look it up. It's it's fantastic and it's it's That's beautiful true. to sound. It's beautiful sounds to um, to listen to, and. When I, when I hear it, I also recognize that throat singing is, uh, there's a shared experience. Yes. Watch a video, don't just listen to it, watch a video of it happening live. And, and you cannot tell me that we all are dealing with the same musical language the world over when you see that, because it is sounds created in a way that is different than any other place in the world. And I'm fascinated by the, the indigenous musics of many countries around the world, and especially Inuit people in Canada have something very interesting 